Mighty Lord and Everlasting Father, we thank you that you do not have an angry face to us. We who look to you by faith, who look to your Son, who desire to know him and to be conformed into his image. We so pray that you would minister to us now as we look at the Word of God, as we look at your words to us, and as we so desire the Holy Spirit to minister your word to us, we pray that the preaching would be done according to his power and his unction, and we ask that the hearing would be done in his power according to his ability, that you, O God, would minister to all of us this morning, that we might see your gloriousness in all that you do and who you are, as Genesis so reveals that to us. We so pray these things as we look at the text. Amen. So we turn to Genesis chapter 1, and verse 1, of which I know we have all probably memorized and know very well the most important verse in all of the scriptures, demonstrating this God we have. The scripture reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The scriptures themselves, beginning as God's self-revelation of himself to us in the word, he demonstrates to us that he is a God who is sovereign, who is creator, who is judge, who all obedience is owed to because of just who he is. Genesis, in and of itself, demonstrates all of the attributes of God and all of their various arrays. And this morning, we are looking at God, the Creator, as holy and as righteous. Well, what does it mean that God is holy? Webster defines holiness as exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in righteousness as a divine quality. The Hebrew word that we find in the scriptures is kadesh, meaning apartness or separateness or sacredness as a result of separation. Genesis uses this word meaning to consecrate, to sanctify, to make something hallowed or holy that way, to be separate. Something that is holy or sanctified is set apart for a special use and a special admiration. It is that it's everything that encompasses that which is morally good. And for God, it is God's complete and utter separation from any moral defect. He's perfect. In speaking of his perfections, he is perfectly holy. That's almost redundant to say it that way. He's perfectly perfect. He's perfectly morally perfect. He's perfectly separate. But he's also righteous. And holiness and righteousness go together. Webster defines righteousness as acting in accord with divine moral law that renders one free from guilt or sin. Again, it means that God is perfect, that he is right, that everything that he does is right, and that he is consistently himself in being perfect. He's without any defect. By definition, God is perfectly righteous or perfectly conforming to his own morality and rightness, which flows out the idea of the law conforming to a specific standard. When someone is righteous, they are not going to the left, they are not going to the right. The very word righteous means walking upon the straight line, the line of God's perfect morality. God always does what is consistent with his being as that which is right. But what constitutes what's right? Well, it's almost like a catch-22. God's being determines that which is right. The Hebrew word means just and lawful in conduct and character, being perfect. The Westminster Larger Catechism in question 93 says, 
what is the moral law? The moral law is the declaration of the will of God, which is basically an exposition of himself. It's a exposition of who he is. It's a description of who he is. If someone were to keep the law perfectly, they would be like God. For men to be holy, they're separated from the things of the world and separated unto God. And for men to be righteous means they're following the will of God to be holy. Holy is what you get when you are righteous, when you walk that righteous line. And for God, it is to be consistent with his own as doing that which is right and completely separate from sin and evil and wickedness. Everything that is contrary to who he is, he is perfectly not that. That is why the law is so important in how men are placed in relationship to a holy God, what God requires of them, and how God will be just upon them for their transgressions. Genesis in and of itself demonstrates the holiness and righteousness of God in sanctification and the sacrifice that we find in Genesis. Let's look at a number of different passages uh, overall, these may be more Bible drills than being able to look and read specific texts. So if you want to listen as I read these different scriptures, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3 is one of the primary places where this idea of being sanctified or holy is found in the Genesis book, in the Genesis narrative overall. It says, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Out of his holiness, he sanctified the specific day. God set apart one day in seven to be holy, to be separate, to be sacred. The very first day that Adam enjoyed when God had created him and then placed him in the garden was the seventh day or the sacred day to commune with him. That set a model for his relationship with the holy God. Appointed it to be kept holy, that man might in it consider the excellency of God's works and God's goodness toward him. When men disobeyed God and were found wicked, God instituted a system that would allow men to be forgiven for their wickedness. Because they were not sacred in and of themselves, they became wicked as a result of the fall. The gospel itself is stated immediately after the fall. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Something will transpire to bring men and God back together, the manner in which he first created men and placed him in this sacred relationship with him, as a result of the fall that was destroyed. And Eve, even in Genesis 4 and verse 1, when she says, Behold the man... I have brought forth the man. She was thinking that this was the one that would restore the relationship. Unfortunately, it was Cain. Little did she know it wouldn't happen for a couple of thousand years, a few thousand years. But in the meantime, to continue the sacred relationship that God desired with men, he wanted them to be holy as he is holy. God allowed men to partake in ritualistic object lessons. Sacrifice. Sacrifice was basically a picture to the one sacrificing. It demonstrated substitution. If one sinned, they could offer up a clean animal that God designated to be killed in their place. In their place, the animal was killed and sacrificed. The blood was spilled, and that would demonstrate God's judgment, his holiness. Something has to be justly condemned as a result of sin. Sacrifice was necessary because God requires death for those who disobey his law. That was the object lesson itself. Acting contrary to God deserves the destruction of life. It deserves that. The wages of sin is that. And he punished those who are disobedient with death. 
Listen to what he said in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Transgression against the law, transgression against what God so desires men to do to be holy and sacred, if they transgress it, they die. Death is the punishment. Imperfection, the very state of imperfection, is rebellion against God. Transgression against a perfect being forfeits his blessing and instead invokes his cursing. So imperfection itself is a problem. God desires men to be perfectly holy and perfectly righteous following his law as he is. Genesis chapter 4, 3 to 5 says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain bought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Abel and uh, set the sacrifice before God, took a life, not the fruit of the ground, a life back as a result of his need to sacrifice. Cain's offering wasn't accepted because blood was not spilt. It's judgment upon life that God requires. Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. In Genesis 22 and verse 13, Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering. God requires, as a result of his holiness, as a result of his righteousness, sacrifice. Something that demonstrates his judgment and justice upon that which transgresses his holy law. Another example, as a righteous and holy God, he cursed men for their sin. In Genesis 3 and 4, he does this. In chapter 3, in verse 14, So the Lord God said, because you have done this, you are cursed. When people transgress the holy law of God and are unrighteous, they are cursed. The serpent, the woman, the man, all men are cursed as a result of the fall of Adam. All men are conceived and born wicked as a result. All men are in need of sacrifice and redemption because they are evil, completely and totally. Another way of saying that all men are wicked and evil is simply to say that all men are imperfect in light of the standard of God's holy law. All men are not perfectly holy. God does not grade on a curve. He grades on pass or fail. Either men are perfectly holy or they're not. Genesis 4, 10 and 11. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother, brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. God curses that which is imperfect. He cursed men for their sin. Another example, as a righteous and holy God, he destroyed all of creation because men were evil. Genesis 6, 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, this is a commentary for all men who were conceived and born after the fall of Adam. God let men be men. It was for all men for all time. Genesis 6.12, So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And as a result of men's opposite affinity to being righteous, God then must act justly. Men having disobeyed the law... They must be punished for their disobedience. God would not be just if he did not do that. Remember, he said, if you disobey, you shall surely die. Or dying, you shall die. God is just and he's completely fair. He gives people what they deserve. And justice is the practical application 
of God's righteousness, of God being righteous. A man, imagine a man being convicted of murder, mass murder, as many as you would think he killed. He knows that he's unrighteous. He knows that he's committed these murders. His lawyer knows that he's committed these murders. Everybody in the courtroom knows he's committed these murders. The judge knows he's committed these murders. The jury knows he's committed these murders. The jury finds him guilty. And the judge says, well, as a result, I just decided to let you go free just because I wanted to. That would demonstrate an unjust judge. Justice would not be served. God is not like that. God will measure the degree of the transgression with justice. When imperfect people continually demonstrate their imperfection, God must punish them to the degree they have sinned against him. Otherwise, he would not be righteous. And it would be not right for him not to do so. Man's imperfection must be punished justly. If God were to let that slide, he will be an unjust God. And if he's an unjust God, then we are all in grave trouble. Imagine God saying today, you are forgiven. And tomorrow deciding unjustly that you are not anymore. That would be a terrible thing for God to be unjust or unrighteous or wicked in any of those ways. But God is just. And he always acts in accordance with his nature. Always. When men break the law, they're punished. And so, men were destroyed from the face of the earth in the flood. Except one family. Except Noah who was righteous in his day because he trusted the will of God and believed that God was faithful and God saved him. God is just. He destroyed everyone except for those faithful few. Again, as a righteous and holy God, he dispersed the nations because of their proud rebellion. They rebelled against him. Genesis 11, 6 and 7, the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they began to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, as we talked about last week, that is an amazing thing in and of itself, that God went down and literally changed the information in their minds, that they would speak to one another differently, that they wouldn't understand things that they may have understood before. The sovereign God changed that. But they were disobedient to his will. The scriptures say, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That was his command in Genesis 1.28. To go out, disperse themselves over the face of the earth, not to come together and demonstrate their pride and rebellion in coming together thinking that they would make a great name for themselves. Instead, God dispersed them and sent them their way sovereignly. He's just against pride. Again, as a righteous and holy God, he blessed and cursed people in reaction to how they treated his chosen people. In Genesis 12:3, he told Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as a result of Pharaoh's cursing against Abram, it says in verse 17, But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. He was just to do it. He fulfilled what he said he would do. Those who curse you, I will curse. Again, as a righteous and holy God, he refused to destroy the innocent with the wicked. He is just and he is fair. Genesis 18, 23-26 And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it for you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it for you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. He's just. Now Abraham bargained with God, in a sense. He got him down to ten. He started with fifty. So just ten righteous. God says, yes, even for ten righteous. There was only one. Only one was found. 
and he still spared Lot. But he didn't spare the city. He destroyed the city. God, in his holiness, in his righteousness, is fair. Again, as a righteous and holy God, he dealt justly with Abimelech. If you remember that narrative in Genesis chapter 20. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, if he had sinned against God, God would have been right to kill him. But Abimelech had not come near and said, Dear Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? He's saying, this is, this is not fair. I have not done anything to her. Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she even herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did it this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God himself withheld Abimelech from touching Sarah. But he would not destroy Abimelech simply because of nothing. He would destroy him if he had transgressed his law. And Abimelech says, I haven't. And God says, it's right that you haven't. As a matter of fact, I stopped you from doing it. So God is just and fair. As a matter of fact, he's so just and fair in the way that he deals with people, in the way that he deals with nations, that he makes things right for people. He's a just and holy God in that way as well. He's righteous to make things right for others. For example, for Leah and Rachel and for Jacob. In Genesis 29, 31 and 32, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Reuben. For she said, the Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. He makes things right for people. Even with Rachel, her womb was closed. Genesis 30, 22 to 23, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. Even with Jacob against Laban, Laban had enslaved Jacob. But God said to him in Genesis 31, 12, and he said, lift your eyes now and see all the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. And he gave Jacob all of these streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted animals. And as a result, increased his wealth so much that Laban was jealous because he was more rich than he was. God, as a holy and righteous God, makes things right for others. Lastly, as a righteous and holy God, he made things right for Joseph and disciplined those who were guilty of evil. Genesis 37 and verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him all the more. You remember that he had the dream of the stocks falling and bowing before him and then the sun, moon and stars bowing before him. And his brothers hated him because he thought he was so great and his father had given him this coat which seemed to give him somewhat of a elevated status before them. Genesis 37:28. Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. So they hated his brothers so much that they took him, sold him into slavery for a few dollars, and were rid of him. Genesis 41, 41 and 42. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took a signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen. And put a gold chain around his neck. Even at that point, he had taken Joseph from a slave sold into Potiphar's house to a prisoner in the prisons to elevated to the highest man in the land other than Pharaoh. Why? Genesis 15 and 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. The preservation of the family in that narrative was God's purpose. And yet he used these evil things to judge Joseph's brothers. Yet, ultimately, God made things right for Joseph and he disciplined those who were guilty of evil, his brothers. 
So Genesis, in, in many ways, and we could continue with all sorts of different examples, that God is holy and that God is righteous. And all God's actions with his creatures are holy and are righteous. It is just for a holy and a righteous God to condemn men for disobedience. How much sin really are men guilty of? How much do they really sin? Really? In 80 years, how many bad things do they do? Even take the model citizen. What does he really do? How many bad things? Did he, he didn't brush his teeth when his mother told him. Or he didn't do his homework that particular night. Or he forgot to do something when he grew up and he became a, a policeman. He, he didn't do something right that particular day. He, he's good, there for the, the social good. How many bad things does he really do? And think about it. But Genesis demonstrates to us that it's because of the fall of Adam. It's because Adam, being the representative of all men, and falling with all men, or on behalf of all men, in covenant with God, sets them as imperfect. And because God's actions are always holy and righteous with his creation, God must, as a result of the fall, punish men for being imperfect. If men do anything past what Adam has already done for them, they simply compound their guilt. Adam was responsible for his actions and the consequences of those actions for all men. For example, the president says to us, we're going to war with Iraq. That means we are all in a war with Iraq as American citizens. He is our representative on our behalf. If he says we go to war, then we are all in a war with Iraq. That means you and I. He is our representative, as Adam was our ultimate representative for all time, for all men, in all ways. And he attained for us imperfection, a broken vessel. Something imperfect is defective. It's falling before the norm, and the norm is God's righteousness, is God's holiness. And once that righteousness and holiness is marred in us, and we are no longer perfect, then that means that we are at odds with him. That's why the scriptures say that we are at enmity with God. That we ask the question, how do imperfect, defective men, which God designates sinners, get right with God? Well, the answer to that is they don't. They don't have the ability to get right with God. They don't have the ability to become perfect after being imperfect. That's why the commentary on men, on the nature of men, not just the actions of men, but the very nature, for all of their actions come out of their nature. In Genesis 6, 5, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Out of the being of a man comes his desires. Every intent was evil. Not some, not a few, not a couple, but every. Men must then be made righteous by God. Because for God, imperfection is the same as saying evil or wicked or sinner. Because it presupposes that men did something that was not in accordance with what God wants them to do. And if they aren't perfectly doing everything with all of their heart, soul, mind and strength, with what God wants them to do, and he is the sovereign creator of the universe, and it is allowed to tell men what they're to do, and dispose of men as he so pleases, then they are judged. And when men sin, they compound their guilt by sinning against an infinitely holy God. People often say it's not fair that God sends men to hell for eternity for sinning 80 years. That's why it goes to that question, how bad really are men? What was 80 or 90 years maybe they live on the earth? How many sins are they going to commit? Why do they spend eternity in hell as a result? But even though finite men sin, each individual sin against God is infinite because it is a sin against an infinite God who is infinitely angry with every sin sinned against his infinite holiness and infinite righteousness. 
imperfection against God, transgression or sin against him, is infinitely punishable. Men's obligation to love, honor, and obey a holy God is in proportion to his holiness. Not the size of their sin, humanly speaking, but against his holiness. And if men are set in this imperfect state right from their conception, and all the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually, then men are constantly wicked in the eyes of God unless something happens to them that God initiates or God will change for them. Since they're continually wicked, they can't do any good before him. That's what Genesis tells us right from the beginning. And God was so grieved by that that he destroyed all of those men to begin the slate anew. And yet, he still had to call his chosen vessel, Abram, out of a pagan country who worshipped false gods. In order for God to successfully interact with fallen men in a holy and righteous manner, which is the only manner he can interact with them, God must either judge men for their sin or provide a mediator. Remember, God is not just holy. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy and must be appeased and satisfied by sacrifice. He cannot stop being holy and righteous. He must punish sin. Sacrifice is essential. Imperfect sacrifices, they don't count. They don't save. God in the Old Testament had given the shadows of things to come for atonement or making men have the ability to come into relationship with him. When he says in Exodus 29:36, And you shall offer a bull. Every day is a sin offering for atonement. You shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sanctify it. Every day, monotonous, every day, sacrifice after sacrifice. Imagine being an Israelite, standing in line to give your sacrifice to the high priest for the sin that you've committed. And so you've been cleansed with this sacrifice by faith, looking upon it as an object lesson, trusting in God that this is the way, that he so desires these things until the opportune time that the Messiah comes. And then you get out of line and you start walking back and you have a lustful thought and you have to get back in line again. Imagine the monotony of all of that. Even the very inscription on the head plate of the priests in Exodus 39, 30. Then they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of signet, holiness to the Lord. All of this sacrifice, all of that stuff was there that they might come into a relationship to a holy God. And all of that was ultimately fulfilled as we find out by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9 24 and following says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He would then have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed for men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart for sin, for salvation. The prophecy of Genesis 3.15 to remedy the fall is found in the mediator that the holy and righteous God gives to be holy and righteous for us and to be a covering for us. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ with the covering. Romans 5 says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is the type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So it is through Christ being the mediator of the new covenant, being the mediator of the better promises, apart from the law, for us is revealed. Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, the scripture says, being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the same gospel and same information that was given to Abraham. This is the same God, the same holy and righteous character, the same faith, which is why Paul uses Abraham, the father of our faith, as our example. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, And you all the nations shall be blessed. Thus, to them those who are of the faith are blessed with believing Abraham. It's only through the mediator that one can be found or reckoned righteous with God. It's the only way. The blood of Christ is like an umbrella that covers us. So God, who is looking down upon us, either sees one of two things. He either sees us in our imperfections, in our unrighteousness, in our wickedness, which is averse to holiness, or he sees this umbrella, this covering over us, Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only way a sinner may have peace with a holy and a righteous God. There is, for us, application of God's holiness and righteousness as sinners and as Christians. God divides the Bible in two ways. To those who are the seed of the serpent and to those who are the seed of the woman. For sinners, because not all men are saved, but all men are lost, it is just and righteous for God to eternally reject and infinitely torture you under his holy anger and displeasure. That would be in accordance with his own word, that you shall surely die, he says. Not only physically, but spiritually and eternally. Without a mediator, you are in danger of eternal torment under the wrath of God. You stand now under Adam's curse to bear all the responsibility of the fall as if you committed the act yourself. That is how God treats sinners. Right now, God's wrath still abides upon you, just as if you ate the fruit. God, as holy and righteous, who knows how wicked you are in your thoughts, in your actions, in your speech, sets his condemnation against you. And God is able to dispose of you as he likes, because he's God. He is your creator. What will he do with you? What do you think he will do with you? Maybe... You are afraid of eternal torment. You have good reason to be afraid. God, with all those who perished in the flood, with all those who perished in Sodom, with all those he destroys, there you will reside with them. And he will give you your internal inheritance, his anger, his all-seeing eye of holiness and righteousness upon them. In hell now, Men would love for God not to be there. Men would love for God to leave and take his all-seeing, angry face set against them and be gone. Everyone who perished in the flood knows the eternal damnation is very horrifying. But they also know that God is very just in doing so. And they hate him all the more for that. God says in Deuteronomy 32.22, For a fire is kindled in mine anger, and shall burn to the lowest hell. God may simply allow, your, simply allow you and give you your life. Give it over to you. The Bible calls that, and he gave them over. Like in Romans, over and over again. He gave them over. They wanted to do their... They, he gave them over. So he gives you over to it. And in the end, that will be dreadful for you. 
because you're going to have to stand before God who gave, your, who gave you over to your own desires, which are wicked and evil, and the intent of your heart being only evil, and he'll have to judge all of them. And he will judge them all with a perfect righteousness. And if you don't see this as dread, it simply demonstrates all the more that you still hold in your bosom a heart that hates God and hates his ways. It's much like Cain, who despised God's ways and substituted his own ways, and then became jealous of Abel, who did what God said. If every sin is infinitely punished in hell's torments, imagine the agony that you would bear just for the sins that you committed over the last week. Just for those. You suffer for Adam's transgression, reckoned to your count, and then you compound your sin by sinning more. And you'll be punished for those sins as well, including your fallenness. God will not spare the least amount of judgment because he is righteous, because he is holy. And he must punish sin to the degree it deserves. But, but, there is an escape. And it's not simply a desire to get out of hell free. It's not that. There is a huge difference between not wanting to go to hell and having a desire and interest in the Savior in desiring to receive Christ. Christ fulfilled everything that you were supposed to fulfill perfectly. Everything that Adam failed in and that you fail in, Christ accomplished. And only those who trust in the work of Christ the Redeemer, the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent, are saved. And it's a change from trusting that you're okay and everything's okay, and I'm a good person. You always hear that when you talk with people. If you were to die today and you were to stand before God in heaven, why should he let you in? Well, I'm a good person. I've done good things. I've been good. I've helped the old lady across the street, and I've done my service socially and this, that, and the other. But it's a change from believing that and trusting that you're okay to believing that you are very much in danger of hell, which could be calling upon you at any moment, to trusting what Christ did to fulfill the law in doing what you cannot. He was so holy that men may be holy through him. Only Christ without sin can fulfill perfectly the righteous law of God because imperfect sinners must turn to him and receive his pardon and must receive his grace and must receive his work, his righteousness as a covering. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the character of God perfectly. And that's what we need. And by trusting in Christ, you are in fact saying, I am a wicked sinner. I am not good. The thoughts of my heart are only evil continually. And I need a Savior to rescue me from the wrath of God. That's what God bids sinners to do. Turn and repent and change. But for redeemed sinners, the holiness and righteousness of God is sweet. It's sweet for us who are redeemed because we have the blood of Christ as a covering. We have that which allows us, imagine this, allows us to commune with the holy and righteous God. God will only commune with that which is perfect. He will only commune with that which is righteous and holy. Sin makes men guilty before God. But that's why Christians look to Christ because of his blood and because of what he did. His life, his death, his resurrection, and now presently interceding for us. We're covered and wrapped up in his robe of righteousness. The Westminster Confession of Faith says Christ, by his mediation, has procured redemption with all other benefits of the covenant of God's grace. We are made partakers of the benefits which Christ hath procured by the application of them unto us, which is the work especially of God and the Holy Ghost. Redemption is certainly applied and effectually communicated to all those for whom Christ hath purchased it, who are in time by the Holy Ghost enabled to believe in Christ according to the gospel. It's a blessed thing. Adam and Eve sinned and they covered themselves when they were naked. What's a fig leaf going to do? Not very much. They needed the blood. 
God made them a covering. We have a covering. The scriptures speak of it as a covering. Revelation 7.14 These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Ephesians 2.13 But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 1 John 1.7 But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Christ fulfilled these things for Christians who looked to him by faith. He was, the, he was our mediator between God and us. He was our peacemaker to take away the enmity between us and God and reconcile us back to God. He was priest and victim for us to substitute himself in our place. And he made an atonement by enduring the legal ramifications of the law for us. God brings us to court if we sin against his holiness. Jesus went to court for us. He went to the cross. The anger of hell was on him for us on the cross. He didn't deserve to die, but he laid down an infinite sacrifice, being God, being man, on behalf of those for whom he died. And in Christ, two natures were necessary for making that atonement. A human nature to suffer, and a divine nature to give the value God desired to his sufferings. God saved his people from his holy and righteous indignation for holiness, for our righteousness. Through Christ, you are able to be holy. Christ gives his people the ability to be holy by the power of his Spirit. That's why the scriptures say, 1 Timothy 6.18, Let them do good, that they be rich in good works. God desires us to be rich in good works. And it's why he said to Abraham in Genesis 17, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Abraham couldn't do that on his own. We know that it's all from the Spirit of Christ. And holiness is sometimes hard. It's hard because our flesh does not want to be holy. We want to sin instead of please Christ. But God says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. We are to be sanctified. We are to be set apart like he is. We are to be perfect like he is. The further we separate from the world, the closer we are to the Lord. How do you demonstrate your holiness when you're alone or when you're with others? What do you do when the dirty joke is said in your presence at work? What do you do when people start talking lewdly? What do you do when you watch TV and something inappropriate pops up on the screen? Or you see an inappropriate, even in a commercial? What entertains you? What is most fun for you? Do you love to be entertained more than you love to commune with God? What is it that excites you? For us... It should be holiness. It should be righteousness. Jonathan Edwards said, Let all those who profess themselves Christians take heed that they do not defile themselves and profane their sacred character. That's what we are. We have a sacred character. Many times people join the army not because they want to be a soldier, but because they just want the uniform. What do we want? What do we desire? As a Christian, God's holy and righteous name is attached to us. In every area of our life, we should seek to uphold that holy name as a badge of honor. Holiness should be everything to us. For we serve Christ, who has placed his name on us and said we are to be holy. Whatever context we live in, the holiness of God and the reputation we have as a Christian before him should be of prime importance. We should be demonstrating to the world this little light of mine. We are to be lights so that people can see us in a dark world. Let it be that we would reflect the holiness and righteousness of God that even Genesis demonstrates to us. Let's pray together. Mighty God, we are not perfect. We confess before you that that is the case. You tell us that we're to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we don't. You tell us to be holy, as your Father in heaven is. To be holy and perfect, 
O Lord, we ask that you would please minister to us through the blood of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would enable us unto good works, that you would cause us to be holy as you are. Your holiness and your righteousness has such profound implications for our entire life. This is the very reason why we can have communion with you, that Christ came and he died and he bled and he rose again and he presently intercedes that we would be more holy, that we would be conformed to his image, that we would commune with you. We so pray that you would aid us, we so pray that you would help us and all through this week, all through this, the rest of this day, that we might sanctify this day unto you as well. We so pray for your blessing and your help in these things. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.